This is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This is the second of two parts of Chapter 5, which is entitled The New Jim Crow. Racial Segregation Although the parallels listed above should be enough to give anyone pause, there are a number of other less obvious similarities between mass incarceration and Jim Crow that have not been explored in earlier chapters. The creation and maintenance of racial segregation is one example. As we know, Jim Crow laws mandated residential segregation, and blacks were relegated to the worst parts of town. Roads literally stopped at the border of many black neighborhoods, shifting from pavement to dirt. Water, sewer systems, and other public services that supported the white areas of town frequently did not extend to the black areas. The extreme poverty that plagued blacks due to their legally sanctioned inferior status was largely invisible to whites, so long as whites remained in their own neighborhoods, which they were inclined to do. Racial segregation rendered black experience largely invisible to whites, making it easier for whites to maintain racial stereotypes about black values and culture. It also made it easier to deny or ignore their suffering. Mass incarceration functions similarly. It achieves racial segregation by segregating prisoners, the majority of whom are black and brown, from mainstream society. Prisoners are kept behind bars, typically more than a hundred miles from home. Even prisons, the actual buildings, are a rare sight for many Americans, as they're often located far from population centers. Although rural counties contain only 20% of the U.S. population, 60% of new prison construction occurs there. Prisoners are thus hidden from public view, out of sight, out of mind. In a sense, incarceration is a far more extreme form of physical and residential segregation than Jim Crow segregation. Rather than merely shunting black people to the other side of town or corralling them in ghettos, mass incarceration locks them in cages. Bars and walls keep hundreds of thousands of black and brown people away from mainstream society, a form of apartheid unlike any the world has ever seen. Prisons, however, are not the only vehicle for racial segregation. Segregation is also created and perpetuated by the flood of prisoners who return to ghetto communities each year. Because the drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, when drug offenders are released, they're generally returned to racially segregated ghetto communities, the places they call home. In many cities, the re-entry phenomenon is highly concentrated in a small number of neighborhoods. According to one study, during a 12-year period, the number of prisoners returning home to core counties, those counties that contain the inner city of a metropolitan area, tripled. The effects are felt throughout the United States. In interviews with 100 residents of two Tallahassee, Florida communities, researchers found that nearly every one of them had experienced or expected to experience the return of a family member from prison. Similarly, a survey of families living in the Robert Taylor homes in Chicago found that the majority of residents either had a family member in prison or expected one to return within the next two years. Fully, 70% of the men between the ages of 18 and 45 in the impoverished and overwhelmingly black North Lawndale neighborhood on Chicago's west side are ex-offenders, saddled for life with a criminal record. The majority, 60%, were incarcerated for drug offenses. These neighborhoods are a minefield for parolees, for a standard condition of parole is a promise not to associate with felons. As Paula Wolf, a senior executive at Chicago Metropolis 2020, observes, in these ghetto neighborhoods, it's hard for a parolee to walk to the corner store to get a carton of milk without being subject to a parole violation. 
By contrast, whites, even poor whites, are far less likely to be imprisoned for drug offenses, and when they are released from prison, they rarely find themselves in the ghetto. The white poor have a vastly different experience in America than do poor people of color. Because whites do not suffer racial segregation, the white poor are not relegated to racially defined areas of intense poverty. In New York City, one study found that 70% of the city's poor black and Latino residents live in high poverty neighborhoods, whereas 70% of the city's poor whites live in non-poverty neighborhoods, communities that have significant resources, including jobs, schools, banks, and grocery stores. Nationwide, nearly 7 out of 8 people living in high poverty urban areas are members of a minority group. Mass incarceration thus perpetuates and deepens pre-existing patterns of racial segregation and isolation, not just by removing people of color from society and putting them in prisons, but by dumping them back into ghettos upon their release. Youth of color who might have escaped their ghetto communities or helped to transform them if they had been given a fair shot in life and not labeled felons instead, of, instead find themselves trapped in a closed circuit of perpetual marginality circulating between ghetto and prison. The racially segregated, poverty-stricken ghettos that exist in inner-city communities across America would not exist today but for racially biased government policies for which there has never been meaningful redress. Yet, every year, hundreds of thousands of poor people of color who have been targeted by the war on drugs are forced to return to these racially segregated communities, neighborhoods still crippled by the legacy of an earlier system of control. As a practical matter, they have no other choice. In this way, mass incarceration, like its predecessor Jim Crow, creates and maintains racial segregation. Symbolic Production of Race Arguably the most important parallel between mass incarceration and Jim Crow is that both have served to define the meaning and significance of race in America. Indeed, a primary function of any racial caste system is to define the meaning of race in its time. Slavery defined what it meant to be black, a slave, and Jim Crow defined what it meant to be black, a second-class citizen. Today, mass incarceration defines the meaning of blackness in America. Black people, especially black men, are criminals. That is what it means to be black. The temptation is to insist that black men choose to be criminals. The system does not make them criminals, at least not in the way that slavery made black slaves or Jim Crow made them second-class citizens. The myth of choice here is seductive, but it should be resisted. African Americans are not significantly more likely to use or sell prohibited drugs than whites, but they are made criminals at drastically higher rates for precisely the same conduct. In fact, studies suggest that white professionals may be the most likely of any group to have engaged in illegal drug activity in their lifetime, yet they're the least likely to be made criminals. The prevalence of illegal drug activity among all racial and ethnic groups creates a situation in which, due to limited law enforcement resources and political constraints, some people are made criminals while others are not. Black people have been made criminals by the war on drugs to a degree that dwarfs its effect on other racial and ethnic groups, especially whites. And the process of making them criminals has produced racial stigma. Every racial caste system in the United States has produced racial stigma. Mass incarceration is no exception. Racial stigma is produced by defining negatively what it means to be black. The stigma of race was once the shame of the slave, then it was the shame of the second-class citizen. Today, the stigma of race is the shame of the criminal. As described in Chapter 4, many ex-offenders describe an existential angst associated with their pariah status, an angst that casts a shadow over every aspect of their identity and social experience. 
The shame and stigma is not limited to the individual. It extends to family members and friends. Even whole communities are stigmatized by the presence of those labeled criminals. Those stigmatized often adopt coping strategies African Americans once employed during the Jim Crow era, including lying about their own criminal history and the status of their family members in an attempt to pass as someone who will be welcomed by mainstream society. The critical point here is that, for black men, the stigma of being a criminal in the era of mass incarceration is fundamentally a racial stigma. This is not to say stigma is absent for white criminals. It's present and powerful. Rather, the point is that the stigma of criminality for white offenders is different. It is a non-racial stigma. An experiment may help to illustrate how and why this is the case. Say the following to nearly anyone and watch the reaction. We really need to do something about the problem of white crime. Laughter is a likely response. The term white crime is a nonsensical one in the era of mass incarceration, unless one is really referring to white-collar crime, in which case the term is understood to mean the types of crimes that seemingly respectable white people commit in the comfort of fancy offices. Because the term white crime lacks social meaning, the term white criminal is also perplexing. In that formulation, white seems to qualify the term criminal, as if to say, he's a criminal but not that kind of criminal, or he's not a real criminal, i.e. not what we mean by criminal today. In the era of mass incarceration, what it means to be a criminal in our collective consciousness has become conflated with what it means to be black, so the term white criminal is confounding, while the term black criminal is nearly redundant. Recall the studies discussed in Chapter 3 that revealed that when survey respondents were asked to picture a drug criminal, nearly everyone pictured someone who was black. This phenomenon helps to explain why studies indicate that white ex-offenders may actually have an easier time gaining employment than African Americans without a criminal record. To be a black man is to be thought of as a criminal, and to be a black criminal is to be despicable, a social pariah. To be a white criminal is not easy, by any means, but as a white criminal you are not a racial outcast, though you may face many forms of social and economic exclusion. Whiteness mitigates crime, whereas blackness defines the criminal. As we have seen in earlier chapters, the conflation of blackness with crime did not happen organically. Rather, it was constructed by political and media elites as part of the broad project known as the War on Drugs. This conflation served to provide a legitimate outlet to the expression of anti-black resentment and animus, a convenient release valve now that explicit forms of racial bias are strictly condemned. In the era of colorblindness, it's no longer permissible to hate blacks, but we can hate criminals. Indeed, we're encouraged to do so. As writer John Edgar Wideman points out, it's respectable to tar and feather criminals to advocate locking them up and throwing away the key. It's not racist to be against crime, even though the archetypal criminal in the media and the public imagination almost always wears Willie Horton's face. It's precisely because our criminal justice system provides a vehicle for the expression of conscious and unconscious anti-black sentiment that the prison label is experienced as a racial stigma. The stigma exists whether or not one has been formally branded a criminal, yet another parallel to Jim Crow. Just as African Americans in the North were stigmatized by the Jim Crow system even if they were not subject to its formal control, black men today are stigmatized by mass incarceration and the social construction of the criminal black man, whether they have been to prison or not. For those who have been branded, the branding serves to intensify and deepen the racial stigma, as they are constantly reminded in virtually every contact they have with public agencies as well as with private employers and landlords that they are now the new untouchables.
In this way, the stigma of race has become the stigma of criminality. Throughout the criminal justice system, as well as in our schools and public spaces, young plus black plus male is equated with the reasonable suspicion justifying the arrest, interrogation, search, and detention of thousands of Americans every year, as well as their exclusion from employment and housing and the denial of educational opportunity. Because black youth are viewed as criminals, they face severe employment discrimination and are also pushed out of schools through racially biased school discipline policies. For black youth, the experience of being made black often begins with the first police stop, interrogation, search, or arrest. The experience carries social meaning. This is what it means to be black. The story of one's first time may be repeated to family or friends, but for ghetto youth, almost no one imagines that the first time will be the last. The experience is understood to define the terms of one's relationship, not only to the state, but to society at large. This reality can be frustrating for those who strive to help ghetto youth turn their lives around. James Foreman Jr., the co-founder of the See Forever Charter School for Juvenile Offenders in Washington, D.C., made this point when describing how random and degrading stops and searches of ghetto youth tell kids that they are pariahs, that no matter how hard they study, they will remain potential suspects. One student complained to him, We can be perfect, perfect, doing everything right, and still they treat us like dogs. No, worse than dogs, because criminals are treated worse than dogs. Another student asked him pointedly, How can you tell us we can be anything when they treat us like we're nothing? The process of marking black youth as black criminals is essential to the functioning of mass incarceration as a racial caste system. For the system to succeed, that is, for it to achieve the political goals described in Chapter 1, black people must be labeled criminals before they're formally subject to control. The criminal label is essential, for forms of explicit racial exclusion are not only prohibited, but widely condemned. Thus, black youth must be made, labeled, criminals. This process of being made a criminal is, to a large extent, the process of becoming black. As Weidemann explains, when... To be a man of color of a certain economic class and milieu is equivalent in the public eye to being a criminal. Being processed by the criminal justice system is tantamount to being made black, and doing time behind bars is at the same time marking race. At its core, then, mass incarceration, like Jim Crow, is a race-making institution. It serves to define the meaning and significance of race in America. The Limits of the Analogy Saying that mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow can leave a misimpression. The parallels between the two systems of control are striking, to say the least. In both, we find racial opportunism by politicians, legalized discrimination, political disenfranchisement, exclusion of blacks from juries, stigmatization, the closing of courthouse doors, racial segregation, and the symbolic production of race. Yet, there are important differences. Just as Jim Crow, as a system of racial control, was dramatically different from slavery, mass incarceration is different from its predecessor. In fact, if one were to draft a list of the differences between slavery and Jim Crow, the list might well be longer than the list of similarities. The same goes for Jim Crow and mass incarceration. Each system of control has been unique, well adapted to the circumstances of its time. If we fail to appreciate the differences, we will be hindered in our ability to meet the challenges created by the current moment. At the same time, though, we must be careful not to assume that differences exist when they do not, or to exaggerate the ones that do. Some differences may appear on the surface to be major, but on close analysis they prove less significant. 
An example of a difference that is less significant than it may initially appear is the fact that Jim Crow was explicitly race-based, whereas mass incarceration is not. This statement initially appears self-evident, but it is, it is partially mistaken. Although it is common to think of Jim Crow as an explicitly race-based system, in fact a number of key policies were officially colorblind. As previously noted, poll taxes, literacy tests, and felon disenfranchisement laws were all formally race-neutral practices that were employed in order to avoid the prohibition on race discrimination and voting contained in the 15th Amendment. These laws operated to create an all-white electorate because they excluded African Americans from the franchise, but were not generally applied to whites. Poll workers had the discretion to charge a poll tax or administer a literacy test or not, and they exercised their discretion in a racially discriminatory manner. Laws that said nothing about race operated to discriminate because those charged with enforcement were granted tremendous discretion, and they exercised that discretion in a highly discriminatory manner. The same is true in the drug war. Laws prohibiting the use and sale of drugs are facially race-neutral, but they're enforced in a highly discriminatory fashion. The decision to wage the drug war primarily in black and brown communities rather than white ones and to target African Americans but not whites on freeways and train stations has been precisely has had precisely the same effect as the literacy and poll taxes of an earlier era. A facially race-neutral system of laws has operated to create a racial caste system. Other differences between Jim Crow and mass incarceration are actually more significant than they may initially appear. An example relates to the role of racial stigma in our society. As discussed in Chapter 4, during Jim Crow, racial stigma contributed to racial solidarity in the black community. Racial stigma today, however, that is, the stigma of black criminality, has turned the black community against itself, destroyed networks of mutual support, and created a silence about the new caste system among many of the people most affected by it. The implications of this difference are profound. Racial stigma today makes collective action extremely difficult, sometimes impossible, whereas racial stigma during Jim Crow contained the seeds of revolt. Described below are a number of the other important differences between Jim Crow and mass incarceration. Listing all of the differences here is impractical, so instead we will focus on a few of the major differences that are most frequently cited in defense of mass incarceration, including the absence of overt racial hostility, the inclusion of whites in the system of control, and African-American support for some get-tough policies and drug war tactics. Absence of racial hostility First, let's consider the absence of overt racial hostility among politicians who support harsh drug laws and the law enforcement officials charged with enforcing them. The absence of overt racial hostility is a significant difference from Jim Crow, but it can be exaggerated. Mass incarceration, like Jim Crow, was born of racial opportunism, an effort by white elites to exploit the racial hostilities, resentments, and insecurities of poor and working class whites. Moreover, racial hostility and racial violence have not altogether disappeared, given that complaints of racial slurs and brutality by the police and prison guards are fairly common. Some scholars and commentators have pointed out that the racial violence once associated with brutal slave masters of the Ku Klux Klan has been replaced to some extent by violence perpetrated by the state. Racial violence has been rationalized, legitimated, and channeled through our criminal justice system. It's expressed as police brutality, solitary confinement, and the discriminatory and arbitrary imposition of the death penalty. But even granting some African Americans may fear the police today as much as their grandparents feared the Klan, 
as a wallet can be mistaken for a gun, and that the penal system may be as brutal in many respects as Jim Crow or slavery, the absence of racial hostility in the public discourse and the steep decline in vigilante racial violence is no small matter. It is also significant that the whites only signs are gone and that children of all colors can drink from the same water fountains, swim in the same pools, and play on the same playgrounds. Black children today can even dream of being presidents of the United States. Those who claim that mass incarceration is just like Jim Crow make a serious mistake. Things have changed. The fact that a clear majority of Americans were telling pollsters in the early 1980s, when the drug war was kicking off, that they opposed race discrimination in nearly all its forms should not be dismissed lightly. Arguably, some respondents may have been telling pollsters what they thought was appropriate rather than what they actually believed, but there's no reason to believe that most of them were lying. It's more likely that most Americans by the early 1980s had come to reject segregationist thinking and values, and not only did not want to be thought of as racist, but did not want to be racist. The difference in public attitudes has important implications for reform efforts. Claims that mass incarceration is analogous to Jim Crow will fall on deaf ears and alienate potential allies if advocates fail to make clear that the claim is not meant to suggest or imply that supporters of the current system are racist in the way Americans have come to understand that term. Race plays a major role, indeed a defining role, in the current system, but not because of what is commonly understood as old-fashioned, hostile bigotry. This system of control depends far more on racial indifference, defined as lack of compassion and caring about race and racial groups, than racial hostility, a feature it actually shares with its predecessors. All racial caste systems, not just mass incarceration, have been supported by racial indifference. As noted earlier, many whites during the Jim Crow era sincerely believed that African Americans were intellectually and morally inferior. They meant blacks no harm, but believed segregation was a sensible system for managing a society comprised of fundamentally different and unequal people. The sincerity of many people's racial beliefs is what led Martin Luther King Jr. to declare, Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. The notion that racial caste systems are necessarily predicated on a desire to harm other racial groups and that racial hostility is the essence of racism is fundamentally misguided. Even slavery does not conform to this limited understanding of racism and racial caste. Most plantation owners supported the institution of black slavery not because of a sadistic desire to harm blacks, but instead because they wanted to get rich, and black slavery was the most efficient means to that end. By and large, plantation owners were indifferent to the suffering caused by slavery. They were motivated by greed. Preoccupation with the role of racial hostility in earlier caste systems can blind us to the ways in which every caste system, including mass incarceration, has been supported by racial indifference, a lack of caring and compassion for people of other races. White Victims of Racial Caste We now turn to another important difference between mass incarceration and Jim Crow, the direct harm to whites caused by the current caste system. Whites never had to sit at the back of the bus during Jim Crow, but today a white man may find himself in prison for a drug offense, sharing a cell with a black man. The direct harm caused to whites by mass incarceration seems to distinguish it from Jim Crow, yet, like many of the other differences, this one requires some qualification. Some whites were directly harmed by Jim Crow. For example, a white woman who fell in love with a black man and hoped to spend the rest of her life with him was directly harmed by anti-miscegenation laws. The laws were intended for her benefit, to protect her from the corrupting influence of the black man and the tragedy of mulatto children, but she was directly harmed nonetheless.
Still, it seems obvious that mass incarceration directly harms far more whites than Jim Crow ever did. For some, this fact alone may be reason enough to reject the analogy. An interracial racial caste system may seem like an oxymoron. What kind of racial caste system includes white people within its control? The answer, a racial caste system in the age of colorblindness. If 100% of the people arrested and convicted for drug offenses were African American, the situation would provoke outrage among the majority of Americans who consider themselves non-racist and who know very well that Latinos, Asian Americans, and whites also commit drug crimes. We, as a nation, seem comfortable with 90% of the people arrested and convicted of drug offenses, in some states being African American, but if the figure were 100%, the veil of colorblindness would be lost. We could no longer tell ourselves stories about why 90% might be a reasonable figure, nor could we continue to assume that good reasons exist for extreme racial disparities in the drug war, even if we are unable to think of such reasons ourselves. In short, the inclusion of some whites in the system of control is essential to preserving the image of a colorblind criminal justice system, and maintaining our self-image as fair and unbiased people. Because most Americans, including those within law enforcement, want to believe they are non-racist, the suffering in the drug war crosses the color line. Of course, the fact that white people are harmed by the drug war does not mean they are real targets, the designated enemy. The harm white people suffer in the drug war is much like the harm Iraqi civilians suffer in U.S. military actions targeting presumed terrorists or insurgents. In any war, a tremendous amount of collateral damage is inevitable. Black and brown people are the principal targets in this war. White people are collateral damage. Saying that white people are collateral damage may sound callous, but it reflects a particular reality. Mass incarceration as we know it would not exist today but for the racialization of crime in the media and political discourse. The war on drugs was declared as part of a political ploy to capitalize on white racial resentment against African Americans, and the Reagan administration used the emergence of crack and its related violence as an opportunity to build a racialized public consensus in support of an all-out war, a consensus that almost certainly would not have been formed if the primary users and dealers of crack had been white. Economist Glenn Lowry made this observation in the book of The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. He noted that it is nearly impossible to imagine anything remotely similar to mass incarceration happening to young white men. Can we envision a system that would enforce drug laws almost exclusively among young white men and largely ignore drug crime among young black men? Can we imagine large majorities of young white men being rounded up for minor drug offenses placed under the control of the criminal justice system, labeled felons, and then subjected to a lifetime of discrimination, scorn, and exclusion? Can we imagine this happening while most black men landed decent jobs or trotted off to college? No, we cannot. If such a thing occurred, it would occasion the most profound reflection about what had gone wrong, not only with them, but with us. It would never be dismissed with the thought that white men were simply reaping what they have sown. The criminalization of white men would disturb us to the core. So, the critical questions are, what disturbs us? What is dissonant? What seems anomalous? What is contrary to expectation? Or, more to the point, whom do we care about? An answer to the last question may be found by considering the drastically different manner that we as a nation responded to drunk driving in the mid-1980s as compared to crack cocaine. During the 1980s, at the same time crack was making headlines, a broad-based grassroots movement was underway to address the widespread and sometimes fatal problem of drunk driving. 
unlike the drug war, which was initiated by political elites long before ordinary people identified it as an issue of extraordinary concern, the movement to crack down on drunk drivers was a bottom-up movement, led most notably by mothers whose families were shattered by deaths caused by drunk driving. Media coverage of the movement peaked in 1988, when a drunk driver traveling the wrong way on Interstate 71 in Kentucky caused a head-on collision with a school bus. 27 people died, and dozens more were injured in the ensuing fire. The tragic accident, known as the Carrollton Bus Disaster, was one of the worst in U.S. history. In the aftermath, several parents of the victims became actively involved in Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, and one became its national president. Throughout the 1980s, drunk driving was a regular topic in the media, and the term designated driver became part of the American lexicon. At the close of the decade, drunk drivers were responsible for approximately 22,000 deaths annually, while overall alcohol-related deaths were close to 100,000 a year. By contrast, during the same time period, there were no prevalence statistics at all on crack, much less crack-related deaths. In fact, the number of deaths related to all illegal drugs combined was tiny compared to the number of deaths caused by drunk drivers. The total of all drug-related deaths due to AIDS, drug overdose, or the violence associated with the illegal drug trade was estimated at 21,000 annually, less than the number of deaths directly caused by drunk drivers, and a small fraction of the number of alcohol-related deaths that occur every year. In response to growing concern, fueled by advocacy groups such as MAD and by the media coverage of drunk driving fatalities, most states adopted tougher laws to punish drunk driving. Numerous states now have some type of mandatory sentencing for this offense, typically two days in jail for a first offense and two to ten days for a second offense. Possession of a tiny amount of crack cocaine, on the other hand, carries a mandatory minimum sentence of five years in federal prison. The vastly different sentences afforded drunk drivers and drug offenders speaks volumes regarding who is viewed as disposable, someone to be purged from the body politic, and who is not. Drunk drivers are predominantly white and male. White men comprised 78% of the arrests for this offense in, the 19, in 1990, when new mandatory minimums governing drunk driving were being adopted. They're generally charged with misdemeanors and typically receive sentences involving fines, license suspension, and community service. Although drunk driving carries a far greater risk of violent death than the use or sale of illegal drugs, the societal response to drunk drivers has generally emphasized keeping the person functional and in society, while attempting to respond to the dangerous behavior through treatment and counseling. People charged with drug offenses, though, are disproportionately poor people of color, they're typically charged with felonies and sentenced to prison. Another clue that mass incarceration as we know it would not exist but for the race of the imagined enemy can be found in the history of drug law enforcement in the United States. Yale historian David Musto and other scholars have documented a disturbing, though unsurprising, pattern. Punishment becomes more severe when drug use is associated with people of color, but softens when it's associated with whites. The history of marijuana policy is a good example. In the early 1900s, marijuana was perceived, rightly or wrongly, as a drug used by blacks and Mexican Americans, leading to the Boggs Act of 1950s, penalizing the first-time possession of marijuana with a sentence of two to five years in prison. In the 1960s, though, when marijuana became associated with the, with the white middle class and college kids, commissions were promptly created to study whether marijuana was really harmful as once thought. 
1970, the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act differentiated marijuana from other narcotics and lowered federal penalties. The same drug that had been considered fearsome 20 years earlier, when associated with African Americans and Latinos, was refashioned as a relatively harmless drug when associated with whites. In view of the nation's treatment of predominantly white drunk drivers and drug offenders, it's extremely difficult to imagine that our nation would have declared an all-out war on drug offenders if the enemy had been defined in the public imagination as white. It was the conflation of blackness and crime in the media and political discourse that made the drug war and the sudden massive expansion of our prison system possible. White drug criminals are collateral damage in the war on drugs because they've been harmed by a war declared with blacks in mind. While this circumstance is horribly unfortunate for them, it does create important opportunities for a multiracial bottom-up resistance movement, one in which people of all races can claim a clear stake. For the first time in our nation's history, it may become readily apparent to whites how they too can be harmed by anti-black racism, a fact that, until now, has been difficult for many to grasp. Black support for get-tough policies. Yet another notable difference between Jim Crow and mass incarceration is that many African Americans seem to support the current system of control, while most believe the same could not be said of Jim Crow. It is frequently argued in defense of mass incarceration that African Americans want more police and more prisons, because crime is so bad in some ghetto communities. It's wrong, these defenders claim, for the tactics of mass incarceration, such as the concentration of law enforcement in poor communities of color, the stop-and-frisk programs that have proliferated nationwide, the eviction of drug offenders and their families from public housing, and the drug sweeps of ghetto neighborhoods, to be characterized as racially discriminatory, because these programs and policies have been adopted for the benefit of African-American communities, and are supported by many ghetto residents. Ignoring rampant crime in ghetto communities would be racially discriminatory, they say. Responding forcefully to it is not. This argument on the surface seems relatively straightforward, but there are actually many layers to it, some of which are quite problematic. To begin with, the argument implies that African Americans prefer harsh criminal justice policies to other forms of governmental intervention, such as job creation, economic development, educational reform, and restorative justice programs, as the long-term solution to problems associated with crime. There's no evidence to support such a claim. To the contrary, surveys consistently show that African Americans are generally less supportive of harsh criminal justice policies than whites, even though blacks are far more likely to be the victims of crime. This pattern is particularly remarkable in that less educated people tend to be more punitive and blacks on average are less educated than whites. The notion that African Americans support get-tough approaches to crime is further complicated by the fact that crime is not a generic category. There are many different types of crime, and violent crime tends to provoke the most visceral and punitive response. Yet, as we have seen in Chapter 2, the drug war has not been aimed at rooting out the most violent drug traffickers, or so-called kingpins. The vast majority of those arrested for drug crimes are not charged with serious offenses, and most of the people in state prison on drug charges have no history of violence or significant selling activity. Those who are kingpins are often able to buy their freedom by forfeiting their assets, snitching on other dealers, or becoming paid government informants. Thus, to the extent that some African Americans support harsh policies aimed at violent offenders, they cannot be said to support the war on drugs, which has been waged primarily against nonviolent, low-level offenders in poor communities of color. 
The one thing that is clear from the survey data and ethnographic research is that African Americans in ghetto communities experience an intense dual frustration regarding crime and law enforcement. As Glenn Lowry explained more than a decade ago, when violent crime rates were making headlines, the young black men wreaking havoc in the ghetto are still our youngsters in the eyes of many of the decent poor and working class black people who sometimes are their victims. Throughout the black community, there's widespread awareness that black ghetto youth have few if any realistic options, and therefore dealing drugs can be an irresistible temptation. Suburban white youth may deal drugs to their friends and acquaintances as a form of recreation and extra cash, but for ghetto youth, drug sales, though rarely lucrative, are often a means of survival, a means of helping to feed and clothe themselves and their families. The fact that this career path leads almost inevitably to jail is often understood as an unfortunate fact of life, part of what it means to be black in America. Women in particular express complicated, conflicted views about crime, because they love their sons, husband, and partners, and understand their plight as current and future members of the racial undercaste. At the same time, though, they abhor gangs and the violence associated with inner-city life. One commentator explained, African-American women in poor neighborhoods are torn. They worry about their young sons getting involved in gang activity. They worry about their sons possibly selling or using drugs. They worry about their children getting caught in the crossfire of warring gangs. These mothers want better crime and law enforcement. Yet they understand that increased levels of law enforcement potentially saddle their children with a felony conviction, a mark that can ensure economic and social marginalization. Given the dilemma facing poor black communities, it's inaccurate to say that black people support mass incarceration or get tough policies. The fact that some black people endorse harsh responses to crime is best understood as a form of complicity with mass incarceration, not support for it. This complicity is perfectly understandable, for the threat posed by crime, particularly violent crime, is real, not imagined. Although African Americans do not engage in drug crime at significantly higher rates than whites, black men do have much higher rates of violent crime, and violent crime is concentrated in ghetto communities. Studies have shown that joblessness, not race or black culture, explains the high rates of violent crime in poor black communities. When researchers have controlled for joblessness, differences in violent crime rates between young black and white men disappear. Regardless, the reality for poor blacks trapped in ghettos remains the same. They must live in a state of perpetual insecurity and fear. It's perfectly understandable, then, that some African Americans would be complicit with the system of mass incarceration, even if they oppose, as a matter of social policy, the creation of racially isolated ghettos and the subsequent transfer of black youth from underfunded, crumbling schools to brand new high-tech prisons. In the era of mass incarceration, poor African Americans are not given the option of great schools, community investment, and job training. Instead, they're offered police and prisons. If the only choice that is offered blacks is rampant crime or more prisons, the predictable and understandable answer will be more prisons. The predicament African Americans find themselves in today is not altogether different from the situation they faced during Jim Crow. Jim Crow, as oppressive as it was, offered a measure of security for blacks who were willing to play by its rules. Those who flouted the rules or resisted them risked the terror of the Klan. Cooperation with the Jim Crow system often seemed far more likely to increase or maintain one's security than any alternative. That reality helps to explain why African American leaders, such as Booker T. Washington, urged blacks to focus on improving themselves rather than on challenging racial discrimination. It's also why the Civil Rights Movement initially met significant resistance among some African Americans in the South. 
Civil rights advocates strenuously argued that it was the mentality and ideology that gave rise to Jim Crow that was the real source of danger experienced by blacks. Of course, they were right, but it is understandable why some blacks believed their immediate safety and security could be best protected by cooperation with the prevailing caste system. The fact that black people during Jim Crow were often complicit with this system of control did not mean they supported racial oppression. Today, complicity with this system of mass incarceration may seem like the best option for African Americans, although in reality it is no option at all. We declared a war on people residing in racially segregated ghettos, just at the moment their economies had collapsed, rather than providing community investment, quality education, and job training when work disappeared. Of course those communities are suffering from serious crime today. Did we expect otherwise? Did we think that, miraculously, they would thrive? And now, having waged this war for decades, we claim some blacks support mass incarceration, as though they would rather have their young men warehoused in prison than going off to college. As political theorist Tommy Shelby has observed, individuals are forced to make choices in an environment they did not choose. They would surely prefer to have a broader array of good opportunities. The question we should be asking, not instead of, but in addition to questions about penal policy, is whether the denizens of the ghetto are entitled to a better set of options, and if so, whose responsibility it is to provide them. Clearly, a much better set of options could be provided to African Americans and poor people of all colors today. As historian Lerone Bennett Jr. eloquently reminds us, a nation is a choice. We could choose to be a nation that extends care, compassion, and concern to those who are locked up and locked out, or headed for prison before they're old enough to vote. We could seek for them the same opportunities we seek for our own children. We could treat them like one of us. We could do that. Or we can choose to be a nation that shames and blames its most vulnerable, affixes badges of dishonor upon them at young ages, and then relegates them to a permanent second-class status for life. That is the path we have chosen and it leads to a familiar place. We faced a fork in the road one decade after Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were laid to rest. As described in Chapter 1, during the late 1970s, jobs had suddenly disappeared from urban areas across America, and unemployment rates had skyrocketed. In 1954, black and white youth unemployment rates in America were equal, with blacks actually having a slightly higher rate of employment in the age group 16 to 19. By 1984, however, the black unemployment rate had nearly quadrupled, while the white rate had increased only marginally. This was not due to a major change in black values or black culture. This dramatic shift was the result of deindustrialization, globalization, and technological advancement. Urban factories shut down as our nation transitioned to a service economy. Suddenly, African Americans were trapped in jobless ghettos, desperate for work. The economic collapse of inner-city black communities could have inspired a national outpouring of compassion and support. A new war on poverty could have been launched. Economic stimulus packages could have sailed through Congress to bail out those trapped in jobless ghettos through no fault of their own. Education, job training, public transportation, and relocation assistance could have been provided so that youth of color would have been able to survive the rough transition to a new global economy and secure jobs in distant suburbs. Constructive interventions would have been good not only for African Americans trapped in ghettos, but also for blue-collar workers of all colors, many of whom were suffering too, if less severely. A wave of compassion and concern could have flooded poor and working-class communities in honor of the late Martin Luther King Jr. All of this could have happened, but it didn't. Instead, we declared a war on drugs.
The collapse of inner-city economies coincided with the conservative backlash against the civil rights movement, resulting in the perfect storm. Almost overnight, black men found themselves unnecessary to the American economy and demonized by mainstream society. No longer needed to pick cotton in the fields or labor in factories, lower-class black men were hauled off to prison in droves. They were vilified in the media and condemned for their condition as part of a well-orchestrated political campaign to build a new white Republican majority in the South. Decades later, curious onlookers in the grips of denial would wonder aloud, where have all the black men gone? No one has made this point better than sociologist Loic Wackenquat. Wackenquat has written extensively about the cyclical nature of racial caste in America. He emphasizes that one thing that makes the current penal apparatus strikingly different from previous racial caste systems is that it does not carry out the positive economic mission of recruitment and disciplining of the workforce. Instead, it serves only to warehouse poor black and brown people for increasingly lengthy periods of time, often until old age. The new system does not seek primarily to benefit unfairly from black labor, as earlier caste systems have, but instead views African Americans as largely irrelevant and unnecessary to the newly structured economy, an economy that has no longer that is no longer driven by unskilled labor. It's fair to say that we have witnessed an evolution in the United States from a racial caste system based entirely on exploitation, slavery, to one based largely on subordination, Jim Crow, to one defined by marginalization, mass incarceration. While marginalization may sound far preferable to exploitation, it may prove to be even more dangerous. Extreme marginalization, as we have seen throughout world history, poses the risk of extermination. Tragedies such as the Holocaust in Germany or ethnic cleansing in Bosnia are traceable to the extreme marginalization and stigmatization of racial and ethnic groups. As legal scholar John A. Powell once commented, only half in jest, it's actually better to be exploited than marginalized in some respects, because if you're exploited, presumably you're still needed. Viewed in this light, the frantic accusations of genocide by poor blacks in the early years of the war on drugs seem less paranoid. The intuition of those residing in ghetto communities that they had suddenly become disposable was rooted in real changes in the economy, changes that have been devastating to poor black communities as factories have closed, low-skilled jobs have disappeared, and all those who had the means to flee the ghetto did. The sense among those left behind that society no longer has use for them, and that the government now aims simply to get rid of them, reflects a reality that many of us who claim to care prefer to avoid simply by changing channels.